Hello everyone, I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Bimmer. And this is episode 24 of Rolling Release, our continuing podcast about the perpetual improvement of Linux. How you doing this week, Richard? Pretty good. All right. And it's been about a month since we've done an episode of the show. We just wanted to drop in and give you all a quick update on some things that have been going on in the world of desktop Linux. Yeah, so we'll jump right in here because we do have quite a few stories, don't we? Yeah. All right, so the first one we've got is a quick status update on XFCE 4.14. So XFCE is a lightweight desktop environment, and we don't talk about it a whole lot. Um, Normally it doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but it is fairly popular, um, and it doesn't change much, which means there's not a lot of updates. But the past few years they've been working on 4.14, And if you're not aware, XFCE is not a single component like GNOME tries to be. XFCE is a lot more like KDE, where it's a set of lots of different software. And you can use just some of that software, or you can choose to use all of it. Uh, But that includes Thunar, their file manager. They've got XFWM, their window manager. They've got their panel is a separate application. Their settings menu is a separate application. And the way that XFCE versions their project is that the even versions like 4.8, 4.10, 4.12, those are the stable versions. And then the odd ones in between, 4.9, 11, 13, those are going to be the development versions. So they're currently stuck at version 4.13, and they have been for a while. That's what this article is about. Their release model is supposed to have three phases, planning, development, and release, which on paper sounds great, uh, but they aren't actually doing it in practice. Um, They're stuck in the development phase of that three-phase model. The latest stable of XFCE is 4.12, which was released in February 2015, almost three years ago. According to their release model, the release model actually includes estimated times that they should follow, and they should have released 4.14 already, but they haven't yet. And the reason is they had some lofty goals that are lofty when you consider the size of the XFCE team, but they seem pretty basic on the surface. Um, They wanted with 4.14 to port everything in their environment to GTK 3 instead of using GTK 2, which they're still using right now. Um, They wanted to use GDBus, which is a GNOME library, instead of DBuslib. They wanted to use symbolic icons for all of their panel plugins, so making things look a bit nicer and more accessible, which is nice. And they also wanted to remove any deprecated widgets from their code. Um, So right now, in terms of the GTK3 port, as far as that goes, they've got more than 95% of all of their main components ported, which is pretty impressive. Um, But 95% isn't enough for them to make a release, unfortunately. And there are many XFC applications with no maintainer. Some of the applications with no maintainer are their calendar application for XFCE, um, which... I don't know. I a calendar application seems like something that people might want. Like I'm trying to gauge the popularity of some of this stuff. Obviously, Squeeze their archive manager doesn't have a maintainer. That's something that most people would probably developers would probably use on a regular basis for extracting tarballs and stuff. So it seems like that would have interest. Um, XF Burn their CD burning application does not have a maintainer. Their Volume Demon does not have a maintainer nor does their graphical MPD interface. It's a shame because some of that stuff, you know, obviously Volume Demon's pretty basic. Um, I've used XFBurn before. So some of the stuff doesn't have a maintainer. If there are any developers watching and you're looking for a project to get involved in, you know, feel free to check out one of these and start porting it to GTK3. 
because they kind of need to get some of the smaller stuff ported before they can make a full release. Uh, right now, there are still quite a few bugs open in 4.13, which they're working on resolving, including 334 bugs in Thunar at the time of this article about three weeks ago, and around 500 in their window manager, among others in their other various components. Now, not all of those bugs need to be fixed before the release, but the maintainers feel they should at least check them before the release phase to make sure they're not critical. Um, so that's also adding some delay. And... By the time that XFCE 4.14 is out, I think we've talked about this before, GTK 4 might already be released as stable. Um, yeah, so, like, at that point, what what do they do? Like, do they immediately start porting to 4? Or do they should they try and skip 3? I don't know how that works from a development standpoint. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be not a good situation if that happens, basically. And, like I mentioned, the XFCE team is actually quite small. They've got 15 contributors right now for their entire desktop environment, which, wow. yeah, when you consider how many people are working on GNOME, KDE, the big ones, um, having 15 people for what's actually quite a popular desktop environment is a very small team. And additionally, this article notes that since there's no, quote, corporate interest in XFCE like there is for GNOME or you know, other desktop environments, companies like Red Hat, SUSE, and Canonical have few to no contributions at all in the XFCE code. You know, Red Hat obviously does a lot of contributions to GNOME. SUSE is very invested in Plasma, and Canonical for a while had Unity, and now they're back to contributing to GNOME. It's, it's interesting because Fedora, which Red Hat runs, Ubuntu, which Canonical runs, and OpenSUSE, which SUSE runs, all offer XFCE as an option but it's not the default, so they don't get any project support. So yeah, if you want to help with XFCE, there's a Get Involved page on their website. They use GTK Plus with C. Uh, they're looking for people to help them port from GTK Plus 2 to 3. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in helping in, XFCE is a, a cool desktop environment, because like I said, it's, it's built on GTK, but it is pretty modular, similar to KDE as a project um and i have used some i've actually got thunar installed right now uh because kde dolphin has some issues with android mtp connectivity so i just use thunar whenever i uh need to connect my phone to my computer i think a lot of people use little xfc applications here or there and i know the people who do use the desktop environment really enjoy that they've got something stable that doesn't change a whole lot like gnome and even kde do so yeah that's about everything there is to this story did you have anything to add that richard not a whole lot, but it was pretty interesting to see that it's like such a major environment, but so few people are contributing to it. Yeah. All right. Uh, at the same time, the development of, I don't think the development of 4 is that like worrisome for them because I feel like there's not a whole lot of stuff that's using GTK 4 yet, but. Not yet. I think part of the issue though is that GNOME is, the people involved in the GNOME project are the same ones making GTK. Um, so they know already what they're going to have to do, and they're designing GTK4 with that in mind. And once they start porting their stuff to GTK4, they've been working on GTK4, yeah. right? They're going to know exactly what's going on. Uh, whereas XFCE is going to have to learn this new thing. I don't even know, you know, a lot of the new features in GTK4, what they're even going to be. But yeah, XFCE is going to have to to figure that stuff out. And you could have said the same thing about GTK3 when XFCE started this effort. I don't know how early they started pointing to 3. Um, you do raise a good point, though. 4 is not out yet, but 
yeah, we'll, yeah we'll I feel st- like they should still they should stay focused on porting to three first because you think, I think so? That's yeah, still so much is using currently that right. I think important to catch up just to that point already. Because right then now, you're that's compatible with much more. Right now, that's what they're trying. Do you still think that if for like let's say that Ubuntu, let's see, we've got eighteen oh four coming up. What if Ubuntu eighteen point ten comes with a new GNOME version built on GTK four? GNOME four comes out um, because GNOME says it's time for this to be released. And XFCE is still working on 4.14. Do you think at that point that they should still keep working on porting to GTK 3 even when 4 is already released? I would hope by then they'd be almost finished, but. Yeah. Like, if not finished already. But I guess they probably. I don't know. It'd probably be. I feel like it'd still be important because can 4 run on. Can 4 applications run on 3 easily? Or. Can 4 applications run on 3? So you can run GTK 3 applications in xfce which is currently built on gtk2 so i would imagine it would, okay, it would still yeah. be able to run four on three it's but it's not going to look as nice and it's still going to be outdated but yeah that's i guess a good point so i think they should still stay focused because i feel like there's still a lot of three applications that will be staying around yeah and so it's better to have those supported than to try and skip a version completely that makes sense all right and next up, Richard, you're going to talk about... All right, so first, we got a couple stories on elementary OS. The first one is about the version number. Uh, what's going on here, Richard? So, yeah, this first article I'm just going to go through pretty quick. Yeah. It begins with just a quick summary of their different versions. And the way they've versioned up until this point, they had Jupiter, which was their 0.1 version, Luna, which was 0.2, Freya, which was 0.3, Loki, which was 0.4. But then they're now planning to make the jump to 5.0. And their idea for this, their justification, was that they're now a major operating system and they're now like a fully kind of polished production, more environment. And so they're kind of ready to make an official thing. But they thought because this is the fifth release, they didn't want to jump to 1.0. Instead, they decided to jump to 5.0. So I was, I'm a little debating on this because. And one way, I feel like some of those first releases you couldn't really consider, while they are major releases, if they weren't fully polished, I'm not sure you can quite right. just say then this is the fifth milestone now. It's kind of a double standard. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the same time, like I feel like Loki was pretty polished. And even when I used it in Freya, it did work for a lot of things fairly well. I had some problems with Eclipse not working at all, which was eventually... Well, Eclipse, the latest versions of Eclipse Oxygen would not work with... Um, integrated intel graphics yeah displaying on freya so which that was the ultimate reason i eventually switched over to kde because i couldn't use anything beyond like eclipse 3.8 well and i wanted more features okay i used freya for a long time just on a spare laptop um obviously i'm not a developer so i'm not running ides i'm not sure the developers are exactly who elementary targets they say they're targeting developers because they say they're targeting everyone but i feel like their real audience is people who don't really know a lot about computers and I found I've put Elementary OS Freya, which was point three, on people's computers before, and like who didn't know how to use Linux. I've actually put Freya on a Mac before for someone who wanted to switch from Mac OS to Linux, uh, but didn't want to learn about Linux. And so I found it pretty polished for just day-to-day usage tasks. But yeah, I, I agree with you that if they're gonna call it, first of all, I think that yeah, like Freya was pretty polished, Loki was fairly polished. They should have just started going to 1.0 back then instead of sticking out with their, oh, we're we're still constantly working, so we're not going to call it 1.0 yet as a matter of principle. 
Um, I, it was kind of silly for them to do that at the time, and this is kind of that catching up with them now. Um, yeah, I mean, if they'd done it, actually, probably Freya would have been the ideal time to right. switch and say we're 1.0 now. Yeah, that would have been perfectly fine. Nobody would have gotten mad at them for that. Um, but yeah, since they said at the time, people told them, you should make this version 1, and they said, no, we're going to make it version 0 0.3. Like, if you're going to do that, that's fine, but you have to commit at that point and say, all right, this is version 0 0.3. Work all the way up to Right, we got to go through the whole you know, number line until we get to version 1.0 and then we'll be released. Yeah, I, I think that jumping from 0.4 to 1.0, again, nobody would have been mad at them about that. They've got a perfectly yeah. stable thing going on, but for jumping from 0.4 to 5.0, I, I think it's arrogant because this is them saying, all right, last version, we were less than halfway done, but now we're not just ready. We're like, so we've been ready for more versions that we've even released. Um, yeah, and it's basically saying like that Jupiter point one. They're like, this was a major release. That's basically production. This should have been one point oh. Right. Like, well, yeah. yeah. It's like if it should have been one point oh, you should have made it one point oh. Too late. Um, yeah, and I feel like Jupiter probably wasn't like one point oh level. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason that I it actually point one. I didn't know that Elementary had been around for that long. Actually, um, like I I knew that when I got Freya, I knew it was zero point three. But like, if you look at 0.1 like they say it was built with gnome 2 components uh the dock was not their own custom dock it was just docky um it's really oh, wow. interesting to read about some of that that like i had no idea they started at that level and now they've got their own custom desktop that's so polished so yeah that's just a bit of semantics uh the next article or is there anything else in this article you wanted to talk about no that was pretty much everything i wanted to talk about in this article they do give a brief mention of their roadmap here okay but it's not very detailed and there's a much better article, the next one, that has a lot more of the details of what they're actually doing in Juno. Yeah. They have said that there's no official release date on Juno mm -hmm. and that they're just going to basically release it when they believe it's ready. But there are betas that they're working on that I'm pretty sure are up and available now if you do want to test it out. All right. So in this, in the second article, they give a lot more detail of the actual changes they've made. And this is where there were some issues that I didn't like quite the way they approached it. So they start by talking about the panels, the panel in the applications menu yeah. and indicators. And so they, I mean, these, these cover a lot of minor changes. Like they added a um, search icon to make the application, make that applications menu a little more obvious. They added tooltips. There are tooltips for some reason, say command plus space in the screenshots. Yeah. You want to take a moment to talk actually, about that? Yeah. I don't so, know if that's because it's reading from a Mac keyboard or if they just say command for everything, because if they say command for everything, even when stuff is using a windows keyboard, yeah. that would be somewhat confusing to users. If they're I feel like. showing the command icon to users who don't have that icon on their keyboard. So that's actually the icon that shows up on Mac, Mac keyboards, OS. but obviously windows computers are going to have the windows logo there instead. So now when they said we've added a tooltip of, they, they quote it in the article, quote, open and search apps, and they've got a copy pasteable character for the command key. That makes me think it's hard coded in there. Um, yeah. And it's not going to switch to a Windows logo if you're on a Windows machine or a box logo if you're on a Purism or System76 machine. Really, that key is called the meta key, but then every different manufacturer of your keyboard or computer puts a different icon on there. But yeah, I, I think that is Which going developers to developers and people who are like experienced, that's not that big of a deal, but they're saying they're targeting like everyone. Right. And so. I, I talked about 
before we started, we were talking about this. Um, I think there's two possible reasons why they made that command. Either one, the people making elementary OS are using it on Macs and they're trying to tell Mac users specifically that they should be using elementary. Um, so this is targeting Mac users by using that command icon or two, elementary OS is trying to imply that they are just as simple as Mac OS. So they're competing with Mac OS and they want you to feel like you're using a Mac, even if you're not. Either way, yeah, I think that having the little squiggly command icon in there is not a great thing for usability if users aren't going to have that on their keyboard. But um, that's a fairly small thing. You can keep going. Yeah, but I, th I thought it was definitely worthy to mention. So the next thing they talk about, and I'm just going to cover this briefly, is that they've added these additional states to the whole panel at the top of the screen. Yeah. And basically it will like look at your desktop background and if it's a high variation contrast, it'll draw a translucent background. So that means that it'll actually draw a box over it. Mm -hmm. And if it's not a high variation in contrast, then it will just go to the transparent state and just only have text layered over top of it. Yeah. So if you have the article up, you might be able to show them some screenshots. Yeah, I am. But, and then in addition, it will, depending on if your background is dark, it'll show its kind of dark state, which will show white text. And if your background is light, it'll show its other state, which will show darker text on it. Yeah. Just so, in some ways, I think it's cool that it kind of does this auto detect based on your background. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they don't talk about there being any settings or way to change this. So if you don't yeah. like how it reacts to your background, it doesn't seem like you have much of a choice. Right. And that's where I kind of had some problems with this. Now, there may be settings in this, but the article doesn't mention it. Yeah, I haven't I, actually gotten to try the beta yet. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't expect there to be. Um, I, personally, this is not one of the areas where I think it's a terrible thing to not have options. Um, now, like in KDE, I have customized my panel color off of the default translucent one. Um, so like I am using options for that. But like GNOME, when I was using GNOME for a week um, this month, it also does something similar where like it's got the transparent panel when your your applications are away from the panel but then when you put one near it it turns black um and i don't think there's a way well there's definitely not a way built into gnome to change that you might be able to get a plugin to change it or something but i never got mad at how that worked like it it worked well um the kde one is configurable but it's also static the gnome one is automatic and it worked well enough to where i could always see the stuff on the panel um, and it never looked terrible. So like all the screenshots they've got here makes sense in terms of the, the color. If it was like your entire desktop theme changing, that would be one thing, but like the panel, I don't know. You think that, yeah. you think that's going to be an issue? I don't know. I can see, I just am a person who likes customization, having options. And yeah. so for them to not have any option for it at all, kind of. I, I just don't like that. But at the same time, as long as, like you were saying, as long as it doesn't ever look to the point where it's unreadable or right. just like really bad looking, then it's probably fine. And I mean, this is targeted more towards people probably overhaul who aren't interested in changing these kind of things. who are just interested in wanting the computer just to work and do it like in the background and to be there. So the next thing they do mention is they now have made icons that can be animated between states. One of the examples they show is the bell icon um, when you click it for notif to disable notifications and to do not disturb, and it'll actually like ring. And I thought that was pretty cool, but that is a fairly small thing. So 
moving on to system settings, one that they said they work to make it so system settings now does a better job of providing useful feedback about invalid input and encouraging users to create strong passwords. So I thought that was pretty cool that they now at least have it like show your password strength inside the field to encourage you to make a strong password and actually give additional information on it. But the invalid inputs is kind of something that's now just expected because that's the way the yeah, web has gone. Yeah, it seems so. like this is in most installers. Yeah, let's see. They mentioned that now it will detect the individual hardware components in a way that's distro agnostic because previously they were using an Ubuntu-specific script to determine in the power options if you run a laptop or not. And now it has its own way of doing it. So if you're running Pantheon, I guess, on something that isn't Ubuntu, like Arch, or um, what were you saying, the other one that had support for Pantheon? OpenSUSE Tumbleweed seems to have some support for it. Not support, okay, so, but they've got it in the Yeah, repo. if you're running it on those, then hopefully the power options will still be accurate and they won't be trying to rely on a um, Ubuntu script that you wouldn't have. And then they... They have just some short articles about different things, or short pieces about different things they've changed. In the music setting, they removed the status bar across the bottom, and they made albums appear in a new sidebar, and moved shuffle and repeat options to the header bar. So that's the last couple things are kind of stuff that's now just, I feel like, expected in most music applications, that they're kind of the um, control, the volume control options are generally in the top header bar. And removing the status bar, I feel like status bars are not really used that much anymore in a lot right. of applications. Where is the the um, volume in that? Oh, it talks about the shuffle and repeat options. Shuffle like, and repeat options remove yeah. the header bar. I think does the I'm I might be pulling this out of thin air, but I recall reading that they don't have volume options in this application and if you ask the developers about it they'll tell you to use your global menu for that instead so i guess i can see that that makes sense yeah but like sometimes i don't want to move my you know music oh, music yeah. files are like 100 percent loud by default so i normally have my music player set to the 50 volume in order to match the rest of my system but yeah i can see well, can't you change the volume of individual applications, though? You can if you go into the into the advanced mixer, but at that point, you know, you say you're making a simple distro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, but you mentioned the volume thing, so. And then photos, they talk about how they've now made it use a dark style by default. It appears they got rid of the light style because they don't mention that being an option anymore. It's just dark style by default yeah which i and think is said, also the same thing that gnome has done for their photos yeah and they also said they added full high dpi support for both thumbnails and single photo views again we had uh, you had some problems with this i thought you said right <laughs> yeah um i don't know if they're going to talk about high dpi more a little bit later yeah they do talk about it a little bit later toward the end of the article they also say that shell features like notifications and the window switcher quote unquote respect high dpi bring them closer to true full high DPI support. Um, and since they mentioned that a couple times in the article, I wanted to mention um, high DPI, normally when people say that, they're talking about 4K screens in laptops, like really small 4K screens, um, or like you know retina displays in Macs, where you need to basically magnify what's on the screen in order to be able to see it, because the pixels are smaller physically than they normally would be. However, I've got a 4K screen sitting in front of me but it's 32 inches big, so I don't want high DPI turned on. And a lot of applications 
even KDE apps have very, very big issues when I try and turn off high DPI and they think that it should be on, but I'm telling them to turn it off. So they'll say, okay, we'll, we'll turn off high DPI because you think you know what you're doing, but we won't turn it off completely. And it leaves me with messed up fonts. It leaves me with messed up button placement. It leaves me with graphical glitches all over some of these applications like KDE Elisa. This past week, I actually spent a good couple hours messing with Qt environment variables, just trying to get KDE Elisa to look good on my system because it it's hard-coded in there that if you got a 4K screen, it's got to be two times bigger than it should be, and you know I don't want everything to be huge on my monitor. Um, so when they say that they respect high DPI in some of these settings, like their, even just their shell, but also in photos, when they say respect high DPI, they usually mean we respect the fact that we think you're using high DPI um, rather than actually talking about a setting. So if there's a way to actually turn high DPI detection off completely, or if there's a way to set it to not scale, then that's great. Um, but I feel like the elementary folks not having a whole lot of options, like you said, they don't have options for that top panel color. They don't have options for the photo um, background color for their app. Um, I feel like they're not going to be the most likely people to implement options to turn off stuff that they think should be turned on like high DPI. So yeah, I, I wanted to mention that because it's an issue for me and any other person who's using a high resolution screen, but it's not high DPI. And you know, people think when you say DPI, it's dots per inch. If they actually were talking about that, then it would be fine because it would detect that my monitor is not high DPI, um, or that it's it, 32 inches in 4K. It's not and it, high it, per inch. It's it is a, of it is technically a slightly higher DPI than like a normal screen. Things are a tiny bit smaller than they would be on a normal screen, but they're not two times smaller. They're not 1.5 times smaller. Um, if anything, like a 1.05 enlargement would be fine. But they don't do that. They either do like a two times enlargement or a 1.5 or a 1.25. So yeah, I, I am concerned about that, I wanted to mention. But it's not an elementary specific thing. That sucks in all desktop environments right now. Um, so rant over. You can take it back. All right. And then um, one of the things I wanted to mention, they added nightlight, which I think is pretty <laughs> cool. And in addition to adding just the nightlight settings to the display, which is nice, they actually added an indicator when it's on that allows you to snooze it, which is really handy because on Windows, it's like sometimes on a schedule and it'll turn on at like 11 p.m. But then there'll be sometimes I'm playing a game or doing web development a little later, and I really need to be able to actually see what the original screen should look like easily. And then you, I have to go to settings, I have to go to display, I have to go all the way and manually disable it. And I have not been able to find like an easy snooze option for it. Hmm. And so I think it's cool that in addition to adding nightlight, they actually added a full snooze option and you can change, you can also change the level of nightlight, like the warmth on it. Yeah. And you can also just, there's a quick nightlight settings that'll bring the full um, menu up there if you need to control it at like a finer level of detail. Hmm. Here's a quick uh, question. Do you think instead of having a snooze option that you turn on, they should just put an enable option that you turn off in that menu? Because I think they should. I don't know. I kind of like this snooze option the other way because, like, generally the fastest thing I'd want to do is just temporarily disable it for, like, the next hour or the next couple minutes. Right. So just turn right. it off for a couple minutes and then turn it back on rather than 
having to turn on snooze. I mean, is snooze on a timer? Because that sounds like it's on a timer if it's called snooze. Well, it shows it as a button that slides back and forth. Right. If it's just a slider, why not just have an on-off? Yeah. I think snooze is to give the impression that you're temporarily, this is for just for temporarily disabling it. It's not going to fully... But it like also gives the impression that you're about to go to sleep, which you'd want it on in that case. <laughs> the... I don't know, yeah. Because, like, I don't want to have to manually go and turn nightlight completely off in the display settings because then I'd have to go and turn it back on some other day when I need it again. Right. If it's in that indicator, though, it wouldn't be that big ordeal you're making out to be. Like, you're doing the same thing. It would be one click. On my tablet, I use, um, I use Flux on my Android tablet. And it's got a checkbox in there that's the same thing as this. It's a checkbox called Disable Flux. And I have to turn on the checkbox when I want to turn off Flux. And I need to turn off the checkbox when I want to turn on Flux. And every single time that I'm in that application, I have to think about it for a half a second. Like, do not disable, check. It's... Uh, I mean, theoretically, if you disable it, if it's an option to disable snooze, it should then hide the indicator itself, which just essentially <laughs> prevents well, no, you no, from no. turning so, back like, on. If that's what you're concerned about, then I would say have an option to have the indicator shown in the, in the panel, but then when you turn it off, keep the indicator there so that you can turn it back on, obviously. Yeah, no, I agree. It should be an easy option to get to to turn it back on. I'm literally oh, just okay, talking yeah. about the wording of turning on a turn off feature, but I guess I don't know. I think of snooze as we're canceling this out temporarily. Right. I so think of snooze I'm turning as turning on the thing to cancel out the setting temporarily. I think of snooze as we're turning this off temporarily, and we will prompt you to turn it back on in ten minutes. Because when I snooze my alarm clock, it's not snooze until I yeah. turn the alarm clock back on, which this seems to be. My alarm clock is snooze for a set amount of time which would be a button rather than a slider. This, oh, I, yeah. I just feel like this is, I wouldn't be talking about this if we were talking about like Ubuntu Mate. Like this is just something I feel like the elementary folks would have taken into account, but sorry. Yeah, I can you see can how maybe disable nightlight might be a better thing. Yeah. But then people might think it's completely disabling it and not to be used temporarily. What's the difference? If you've got the disable turned on and it never turns back on until you enable it again, what's the difference between having it having a disable slider? Because the setting should be still running in the background. This should just be temporary. This should just always be canceling it out. What what do you think the settings are doing in the background? It. If it's disabled anyway, what does it matter what color it would be if it was enabled? Faster turn because faster it to would turn hide back the on? indicator itself. That's, logically uh, right if i you turn off the nightlight it's no longer in nightlight the indicator itself goes away we're no longer in nighttime we're no longer in manual schedule at all it's just everything's just canceled out then like i said i would be fully in support of just having the indicator there i wouldn't mind having the indicator there all the time even if i don't use nightlight the in exchange for if you do use nightlight have the indicator there even when it's turned off yeah sure that way it's easy to turn back on I don't know. Yeah, I like I like the idea of when it's not on or it shouldn't be on the, in, the indicator for it going away completely because I wouldn't want all the clutter in so my tray. So have in the settings have an option for show indicator. That way, if you use it, turn that option on. Now you can enable and disable it with the indicator, or if you don't use it, turn the indicator off so it's not cluttering up your menu. But if you turn the indicator on and then you turn nightlight off temporarily, the indicator stays there so you can easily click back into it and turn it right back on, like you're doing anyway with this. But instead of turning off the disable, you're turning on nightlight because that's what you're doing. 
Yeah. I did not mean to make a big argument out of this. Yeah. I apologize. We can. It's fine. We We're just gonna on. have to agree or disagree. I just see it differently. Yeah. But all right. So the um, final thing I wanted to mention is they also improved CapNet Assist, which is what they use for detecting when a network, like an airport or coffee shop, requires you to actually like agree to a terms of service or right. log in or et cetera before you can actually access the internet. And so they now have that portal detection directly from the network manager which I assume that means that as soon as you hook it up in the network manager without even having to open a browser, it knows. They already open. had that, actually. It looks like you can configure it for a different Captive Portal server than the default is what the new thing uh, is. Oh, so that makes sense. So they had that probably Loki. Yeah. I haven't used it since Freya to know, so. Okay. I didn't notice that until I was reading it just now, but. So it allows you, and it also saves window size between sessions. I guess it remembers if you change the window size. Yeah, that's nice. Window. So that's new, yeah. apparently. But yeah, they mentioned the various shell features like notifications and alt tab window switcher now support high DPI. We did kind of mention that already. And then they kind of just end with the, in a conclusion that they're still fixing a lot of stuff and there's still many things in active development underway. Yep. But that was kind of all the key stuff they've changed so far. And then if you try out the beta, you can expect to see. All right. So there is elementary OS 5.0 coming out at some point. Our next story is KDE Plasma is getting support for GTK global menus in 5.13. So Plasma has had a global menu feature for a while. Um, it's worked best with Qt apps up until now, obviously. But since GNOME's doing all of their crazy stuff with menus, one developer was inspired to go ahead and make GTK applications also integrate with Plasma's global menus. So this works with things like LibreOffice, and GIMP and other GTK apps. Um, it uses a helper application called GMenu Dbus Proxy that talks to both GMenu, which is GNOME's library for menus, and Dbus Menu, which is the normal library for menus. Um, and it talks between those two different protocols in order to pass the GNOME menus to the KDE Global Helper thing that they've got in Plasma. And this way, there's no adjustment needed in Plasma, no code needs to be changed in Plasma, and hopefully no code needs to be changed in most GTK apps as well. It's just this helper application that runs and bridges the two. It not only works with the normal menu bar, but it also supports the GNOME application menu that's got settings about and quit. Um, some of their apps just have a super simple settings menu. Um, a lot of Qt apps have that application menu as well. Um, this also works with something called App Menu GTK Module. Uh, which is from GNOME, and that actually enables global menus for a lot of applications, and that's something that Ubuntu, um, from what I understand, it's a an evolution of what Ubuntu used to do for enabling the Unity global menu. So they're using that code now for Plasma, and that works with applications like GIMP, Inkscape, Sublime Text, Audacity, and other popular applications. And so yeah, they've got in the article some environment variables you can export in order to enable this in LibreOffice, as well as GIMP, Inkscape, and others. And GTK3 applications, such as Gedit and Shotwell, should work right away, which is great. So yeah, they do mention that it is not easy to get applications to export their menu while keeping them shown inside the window, so you can't have the global menu enabled at the same time as the application's internal menu. But you can now choose to have a global menu instead which I think is pretty cool. Um, that's all there is to this one. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I kind of like this look at the top in the screenshot where it has the global menu. Yeah. 
yeah, it's um, feature obviously has been in macOS for a while, and I also enjoyed it when I was using Unity. Um, some people don't like it because it takes the menu farther away from the application, but I think having the option there for people who want that kind of setup is great. And uh, next up, Richard, you're going to walk us through some of the recent developments in the Librem 5, right? Yes. So there are two articles to this as well. There is one from March 3rd, and there is one from March 10th, I believe. Now, the first one is fairly technical of what they're doing, and the second one is just kind of a design report on their ideas. So I'm going to cover the first one first. So they first start by talking with a compositor and shell. If you may remember in the last episode, I think it was the last episode, we were kind of talking about their design ideas, and yeah. they'd shown some screenshots of the stuff. Well, obviously, those were just kind of screenshots they put together. They didn't have code for doing the stuff yet. And so now they've been working on the compositor to actually be able to implement some of the stuff. So their compositor and shell that they're making supports controls for connectivity, display brightness, rotation. And they set out to develop it using WL Roots and Rootston. I'm not familiar with those, but it's based on their shell is based on those two things. And they have it currently working on the i.mx6 development board. And there's like a video demo. But the main thing that they really like emphasized in the demo is it can, can support switching between portrait mode and um, landscape mode. And applications can support kind of scaling and updating yeah. between those two modes pretty easily. Now, it seems a little slow in the video, but I'm going to assume they're going to be able to fix that or it was right. just running on a very like low processing part of the board. Yeah, this is just a concept. Because they didn't seem worried about concept. it being slow at all. Right. And basically, I mean, I'm assuming they're also not going to be using the GNOME dropdown menu with the mouse plugged in once they get done with the whole thing. Yeah. This is just early. Day. I would imagine it would be detecting it based on a gyroscope, I would hope, and not <laughs> you have to click the option every time to switch modes. <laughs> so now they call, um, now they talk about adaptive and then in front of um, quotation marks, responsive. This is dumb semantic stuff that it's all that entire I mean, section is. It's right. The web industry calls it responsive. They're calling it adaptive when it should be responsive. The point is they're yeah. they're not calling it what other people do, and they say they have a reason for it when they don't, is the TLTR <laughs> for that section. They said basically in software applications industry, um, responsive could be interpreted as performance, so that's their view Which for not. Nobody, nobody interprets it as performance, so yeah. it's irrelevant. But they are hacking away on GNOME to make it responsive when it's not by default. So yeah, yeah, and they wrote a um, we uh, the, they wrote they called they called it the widget or um, Adrian designed a widget. I guess one of their employees, people working with them on their team, designed a widget container that allows these widgets to automatically show or hide other widgets, which was pretty cool. Yeah, and they show an example when you're in when you're in landscape mode, contacts has a whole additional menu or a whole additional panel that can show like that contact information. Yeah and show both the contact information and like your contacts on the side as a list. But when you're in portrait mode, it just shows the list. And if you click on the contact, it just hides that list and like has an option to go back. Yeah. So this is pretty cool because it kind of shows that with very minimal changes to existing applications, there are goals to be able to easily support adding these kind of boxes that can be hidden or shown, these widgets they call them, that can be hidden or shown based on the window size or the geometry. And they really only talk about the geometry here. I also feel like since it is, they're only making one phone that's at currently at this five inch resolution or at five inches and it's going to be probably at the same resolution. I don't think they have to worry about the window size too much yet, but maybe if they're trying to get these apps to eventually also be compatible with their laptops in the future, that's 
what they're kind of trying to set up in advance, it seems like. Mm -hmm. So then they talk about input methods, um, and they say basically that another one of their people on their team, DeRoad, has worked on this and has connected several protocols and plugins together and now have an, a prototype that can take input based on Wayland input method protocols and a GTK plugin that can receive that in a widget as an input widget. They show a video of this on a desktop, but you can see there's a, um, just from the screenshot of it, you can probably see there's a keyboard and then there's a text box that can receive input from the keyboard. They basically said that currently it doesn't support Qt applications yet. They only have gotten it to work with GTK, but yeah. they feel confident that they will be able to get it to work with Qt applications as well. Then they have great like explanation. It should have also been working the Qt apps, but it's not. So we're working on getting it to work. Yeah. <laughs> Good to it's know that they're new. keeping it in mind, though. Yeah. So then they have this very short paragraph on telephony that um, basically describes, I mean, the main line I had as the takeaway here is, we are still not completely there yet, but we're starting to fill in how it can all be done. Yeah. So they believe they have a path to getting you to be able to make a phone call on this, but they haven't like actually done the technical part yet. That stuff's hard, because you got to go through yeah. carriers for that, and carriers don't just give that information out to anyone, but yeah. Yeah, so I can't blame them, but it does seem like they have a good idea of it, and it seems like they're working on it and it's going to be done. Yeah. And then they finally just have, they talk about a documentation and SDK. This is mainly that it kind of shows that they have this aim to eventually be able to allow developers to have a good experience developing across all purism devices. And so their hope is to kind of unify, I guess, the development for app for laptops and phones so that you can develop one app with code that can be worth both, I guess, run on a phone and a laptop using this SDK. And I assume this is what they've really been working on with both kind of the input and the scaling, how it can rotate and how it can hide parts of widgets of the applications, depending on what it's running on. Mm -hmm. And then finally, they just mentioned hardware. They did receive their first i.mx8m chips, and yeah. they're working on evaluating if they can use those in place of the six, I assume, because I think that was in the last article that we'd read yeah. like a month ago. That's That'll kind of their plan to use that the eights. And then they're also apparently working on finding a source for manufacturing and they'll be doing a factory tour by mid to somewhere between mid and the end of March. And that was, I mean, it's a pretty promising article. They have yeah. a lot of information. It seems like they're on a good path. The um, next one, the design report doesn't really continue at all along the lines of the previous one. It's just entirely based on kind of how they're thinking of it. And a lot of the stuff, a lot of it just kind of felt like background information at first. So I didn't really highlight okay. a lot yeah, of it. Yeah, I didn't actually read this one, so you have to... But they're comparing basically current um, app ecosystems to what they want to create. And basically they feel like right now a lot of apps compete on your smartphone for your attention and also have information that's separate from each other. And they use the example of like WhatsApp, Facebook, Skype, and contacts all having four different ways of managing your contacts with different information in them. Right. And then they have like how you really then through that, through the SMS, the WhatsApp, Facebook, and Skype have four different ways of chatting and through call and those three other applications, you have like four different ways of having a phone call or talking with people. And so their vision is to do it differently. And their vision is basically to have their call app be able to support many different protocols, not just calling over like a cellular network, yeah. but also say VoIP and Matrix and other things and have their messaging app be able to maybe support things like, I guess, Skype or um, WhatsApp, but also in addition to SMS. You know, that's not a new um, idea, because obviously, like, on Linux, we've got things like Pigeon and 
macOS had like iChat a while back where it was one application that supports a lot of different messaging protocols. Um, of course, on desktop, you can choose which one you want to use. If you want to use Pigeon or if you want to use, um, I don't even remember what KDE calls theirs, but every desktop environment kind of had their own back when that kind of thing was popular. Are they kind of wanting to make it so that you're going to use the one that comes with it, or are they wanting to make it so that you can choose? I think they're trying to make it so that people are more likely to use the stock applications they develop Interesting. more, which okay. in some way I can see, because I feel like this may also be a way of them defending themselves, because I feel like Skype isn't probably going to go through a whole lot of work to port their proprietary one to make it work well on their screen resolution and phone, and so they feel like we probably need to support this because... Otherwise, Skype is not going to be supported, say, on our phone, or otherwise, like, WhatsApp may not be supported, so we need yeah. to implement it in our app ourselves, or we're going to lose customers who, say, want to be able to use Skype on their phone. Yeah, unless someone's going to use, to use the, the Skype Electron app on their phone, which doesn't <laughs> seem like it would be a great experience. And so then they talk about kind of these guidelines they have, and the main idea is they don't see applications as independent programs, but as features that have a single purpose and that interact with each other. And so kind of their main principles for that is features should share data, but only through only in a trusted or secure way. And then each feature or application should have should be focused on a single purpose. They use an example, they say an email client should not be the address book nor a calendar. It should just pull that information from some shared source, I guess, like the operating system will handle. And then your feature should not should rely on existing features, so an email client should rely on the existing address book and the existing calendars Which to is avoid counting on a lot of things to go right at the same time, that sounds like. Yeah. But then at the end of this article, they do have a please note that says, given a GNU and Linux distribution like PureOS is an open platform um, where thousands of applications are available independently as long as they're freedom respecting, you're not obligated to conform to these design guidelines to be able to distribute your application through Debian and PureOS. Furthermore, these design plans represent a broad long-term plan, not necessarily a guarantee of what will be happening immediately in the first released version of the platform. That is the best disclaimer I've ever seen on a design <laughs> blog post. So basically they're saying, we, this is a great thing we want to do in theory. And I mean, this does seem great in theory. I just feel like it's very hard for it to ever be achieved in practice. Yeah. But they're basically saying that we probably won't achieve all of this on the first version of our platform. And we're not really going to restrict anyone who doesn't follow these guidelines from being in our store because yeah. they're probably going to be desperate to get applications to be in their store in the beginning anyway. I am. I'm cautiously glad that they've got that because that means I see what they're trying to do with like, we're, this is gonna have like features like a feature phone but they're gonna plug into every possible thing under the sun that you every service you want to use um and if they can do that well then awesome um but yeah like i'm glad that they specifically say you don't need to follow these in order to distribute it through pure os um so they're not going to be rejecting apps from their app store because they don't follow the guidelines they're still keeping it an open platform, even though they, they know that their vision is not going to please everyone, that sounds like. Um, so that, I think that's promising. I do also slightly, yeah, I like these ideas mostly, but I do also slightly worry that it kind of could work the other way as well. Because they say, for example, the call application is made to make calls, no matter the technology used behind Matrix, VoIP, or phone. Hmm. So I feel like you could end up having these applications be really um, just crammed and... <laughs> 
like messy to navigate because you're like, well, I have to switch between the ten different protocols that are right. say offered. Yeah, if not now, if not like, crammed UI wise, at least yeah. crammed development wise. I mean, they're gonna have to add every single like the the first time, the second that they don't add a protocol that someone requests, that's them saying our vision's not going to work for someone. Um, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I just imagine like the messaging application. I mean, it's like I use Twitter direct messages often. I use like Skype. I use Facebook Messenger. Like to have all that one application, yeah, would be really messy. Um, well, yeah, we'll see how they do with it. And our, uh, did you have anything else there? No, that's probably pretty much everything for this article. Okay, I think we covered it in fairly good detail. Yeah, our very last sort of big story is a software center redesign in Solus Linux. And Richard, have you used Solus? No. Okay, I've actually, I am sort of in a phase with this. I I avoided Solus for a long time after it first started being popular. Recently, I got into it though, and I actually really like it as a distro. And I recently put it on my dad's computer and my sister's computer. Um, neither of which know a whole lot about computers, and they are now using Solus because I think it's a it's a great distro for people who don't know a lot, and it's rolling release. So it's like I can just put it on there once and not have to worry about updating it every few years like I would with elementary or whatever. But Solus has a software center, and they're redesigning it. Um, when I saw this screenshot, the redesign looks a lot like GNOME software and a lot less like the unique Solus Software Center that they have now. So we'll go through the article a little bit. They wanted to simplify navigation of their Software Center, and they wanted to improve discoverability of software, which... Richard, have you ever just opened up a Software Center and said, I want to discover a new app. Let's open up KDE Discover. No. They named KDE Discover after discoverability. Have you ever opened up KDE Discover and said, let's just install a random program and uh, and see what that does? Or let, let's just browse no. for something. Have you ever done that? I don't think I ever have. Not I, even like on iOS really. I, you know, it's funny you say that because back when I had an iPod Touch like five, ten years, five or seven years ago, however many years ago it was that I had an iPod Touch, um, I actually did every now and then when I was really bored, open up the App Store and just scroll through the top apps and see what's there. That was an iPod, though. It was an entertainment device. My computer is a yeah. tool. I know what I'm doing with it, and I know what I want to install. Um, so discoverability means nothing to me in terms of a desktop Linux software center. And in fact, when people call them software centers, I don't even always like that because they're package managers is what what they are. Yeah. But yeah, the Solus distribution puts a lot of effort into curating what packages they even put in in the first place. Um, and one of the only reasons I'm not using Solus on my personal computer is because they rejected Rocket Chat, um, the Rocket Chat client from their software center, because they had a basic misunderstanding about what Rocket Chat is, which is just great. Because they they've got they've got the Slack client, they've got the Telegram client, but they said, oh, Rocket Chat runs on a server. Why would we add that to our software center? Because it's got a, it's got I a client. Understand it was a client, <laughs> right? They didn't understand, so they closed the GitHub issue with won't fix, uh, which is always great. So, anyway, that's the kind of people that that Solus is. But because they do that, they've got they run a tight ship, um, and it's really hard to mess anything up, even though it's rolling release. Their software center right now works great, but this redesign, yeah, you can see it makes it a little bit wider. I know you haven't seen the current one, Richard, so you you can't compare as well. But the current software center is a lot more. It's like it's less wide, but it also has two panels. It's got a lot more going on, and it seems like it's easier to scroll through a list in the current one, whereas this one, 
rakes everything up, spreads them out, puts them into categories. So I it, feel like there's a lot of white space looking there, at the screenshot. Like yeah. Just a lot of unused, wasted space. Seems like but. they're just trying to copy GNOME, GNOME software and be more modern for no practical reason, which normally Solus is good about avoiding that kind of thing, but... You know, you get popular, you're going to be a hipster eventually. So, yeah, they, they mentioned that they're moving from the old static 4 to 3 design to a 16 to 9 aspect ratio by default, taking advantage of wider displays because nobody ever wants to use an application when it's not at 100% of their display size. Um, and that's why I've got five windows on my main monitor right now. They say the entire layout and interaction have been overhauled to give the feeling of a single-page web app, which... I really don't understand why that's why are why do they say oh let's make it feel like a single page web app like I just I'm not that like liking this color scheme that light blue next to the white and all the white space kind of I don't have a problem with the color big, scheme but... that's kind of the soulless thing it's like a it's like a a less harsh Google color scheme like Google would do that and it would be like solid blue with solid green arrows solace is a little bit more subdued but they go with like a similar it sort of looks like material design buttons i don't have a problem with that but the fact that there is so much white space the buttons are so big and they they say we wanted to give a feeling of a single page web app that wasn't an accident that was our intention um highly responsive with no assumptions on how the user is interacting with the mouse keyboard or the touchscreen because we all know that web apps work great with all different device types all the time <sighs> so yeah they they say the the new software center should start quicker which is nice um and they say it feels good to use which i don't feel programs i just use them um users are not left waiting ages for content to appear i just hope it works as well honestly they talk about how there 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 is some feature improvements dynamic backend support added uh, they've been they've been making blog posts about their package backend as well. They've got a highly threaded design in this program, so it should be in this new version, so it should be faster faster startup time. They mentioned already. Um, they already mentioned responsive UI. There is the ability to stack operations to install or remove on a dedicated work queue. That's nice because right now in the software center, when you click install on something, it just starts installing. Um, which is nice, but then at the same time, if you want to install a bunch of stuff, then you're going to be sitting there waiting for things to install for a while. But yeah, the new software center also has a modular approach. Their current one is kind of built around their package manager, which is EO package. But the, the new software center is actually modular. The EO package plugin is a plugin. And then in the future, they're also going to add SnapD integration in case you don't want to be asked whether or not you want to update your apps. And then maybe other distros can use other package managers with the same software center. But they're not going to. They're going to design their own because everyone does that anyway now. So, yeah, that's that's the new software center. I wanted to mention it. It's funny because, like, I've got such a love-hate relationship with Solus. Like, I love so much about it, but then I hate some of the stuff they do. So that's that's interesting. I wanted to cover that. Do you have any any other thoughts on that new software center? Um, Actually, I kind of, like, I was scrolling down to the bottom and it shows the early preview like where they show and there is basically no categories okay. and i feel like it actually looks a lot better without the categories there let me see here. like that categories kind of area all that white space between it like really breaks it up to the point that it's like and i it's kind of just the way the recently updated thing there's no scroll bar on the side so it's very confusing why it's all hidden um what do you mean there's no categories because i'm seeing categories 
If you scroll down to the um, video, I'm watching the video. Like... Okay, the thumbnail of the video. <laughs> I mean, all right, let me refresh. Oh, okay. There's no categories because I scrolled down past that point. Yeah, I see that. But yeah, I think the the white space around the categories to me kind of like just breaks everything up a lot more. I don't even use categories. Like their current package manager, yeah. they've got one thing you click, and it's like there there's there's different. Their current package manager is so great because they've got a, a two-column layout. The first column has the sections. The second column has a package list. In the first column, you've got search for searching through their repo. They've got third-party for installing things from outside the repo, which they're just getting rid of entirely with this new design. Um, so you won't be able to install Google Chrome or Bitwig as easily until they get those in there through one of these other – well, they say they're going to add it as a, a plugin. But yeah, currently you just click search and then you search for your package and that's it. Um, I have never like, oh, I want to install Caden Live. Let me guess first of all which one of these. Maybe Caden Live is not one that I have to guess. It's probably going to be under multimedia and graphics. But let me click on that and scroll through the hundreds of applications they've got until I find Caden Live. Or a, a better example is like Standard Notes is a program I use. It's probably not in the repo, but let's say it was. So it's a note taking application that syncs online so is that going to be under office software or internet software or programming because it's also a tool and it's yeah a, that's like very unclear there doesn't look to be a search button at the top yeah there's a search button but like there like you said it's a waste of space to have all the categories there and all the white space around it when i'm not going to use that stuff anyway and lots of people probably aren't but and the search button could be a little more i feel like the search button could be part of the app itself to make it more clear rather than just having having it in the header bar. bar that's the gnome header bar thing because even though this is another love hate thing so richard they're in the process of porting their desktop environment from gtk to qt but they're still going to use gnome apps after they do that it's like <laughs> everything about this distribution just makes me conflicted um but yeah that that the fact that they're using the stupid GNOME 3 header bar layout does make the search bar slightly harder to find. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of the new update, but they're pushing it because that's the developer of the developers of Solus are very much like we're just gonna do what we want to do, and lots of people support them um, for doing that. But we won't go on too much longer about that. So there's the new Solus Software Center. You can check that out coming in the next version of Solus. Um, we had a, just a few quick things to mention at the end of the show here. Uh, first of all, there was a Let's Encrypt Acme protocol update recently. Version 2 of their protocol is out. Wildcard certificate support is now live. Um, this is huge because a lot of people, it, not really a lot of people, but like some of the more advanced users of SSL certificates wanted wildcard support. Um, and Let's Encrypt didn't have it. So those people couldn't use Let's Encrypt. They had to go and buy SSL certificates from other, you know, companies who make them. But Let's Encrypt now gives you free wildcard certificates. And I tried to put this on, right now, I've got SSL on all the Nerd on the Street websites except for Knots.co, which is our link shortener. The problem with that is that I've got a redirect system set up where, like, rr.knots.co brings you to the homepage of the show. Nerdclub.knots.co sends you to a place where you can support us on Patreon. But those are two different subdomains, so the same certificate won't work on both of those. If I try and put one certificate on knots.co in Apache, then when you go to nerdclub.knots.co, it'll say, warning, this SSL certificate says rr.knots.co. With a wildcard... if you did it the other way, like if, just knots.co slash rr? If you did it right, but I don't tell people to go to knots.co slash rr. 
because I think ara.nots.co sounds cleaner. And that was the decision I made when oh, I built okay. our URL shortening system. Yeah, our URL shortening system is multi-part. We've got a, an application called URLs, which does the, it does a redirect to nots.co slash rr. You're correct. Um, but I wanted the subdomain thing. So oh, okay. I set up an Apache redirect there with an HD access file. And that's how I've been doing it for years. So I want to keep doing that. And now I'll be able to is the point. Like th that's mm -hmm. a supported function in wildcard certificates because now I can just put asterisk.nots.co and it'll do anything, which is great. So now I tried to implement that. And even though the Acme protocol has support for it now, CertBot, which is the plugin that I use that goes into Apache and sets everything up automatically for me, has not been updated to support wildcard certificates yet. Um, but the protocol supports it now. It is possible. You can generate those manually if you want to place them in your web server manually. That's a big update. So wanted to mention that. Uh, Debian 9.4 has been released. Just another quick thing to mention. This was just last week this was released. Just a point update. It's got, you know, Debian is not rolling release. So you only get updates um, like when things like this come out really. So yeah, they've got some fixes for various bugs and things. If you're using Debian, you're going to want to upgrade to 9.4. And then another small thing, System76. Richard, do you see this picture in this tweet that System76 sent out? I don't know if you opened up the small things. I'm opening it now real okay, quick. System76 has acquired a warehouse uh, in order to... It, they're going to be using it to build their computers since they are... Uh, obviously going to start manufacturing their own desktops soon and maybe laptops in the future. This is a huge space, it looks like. And, you know, it's crazy because, like, they're not in a giant office building for their office. They're in I, – I visited their office in 2017, and they are just in, like, a like an office suite in, like, the third floor of some big building in downtown Denver. But they've only got a small office but then they've got this huge warehouse. Um, so it's it's really interesting. But obviously they're going to be using the warehouse. They need the space to build stuff. I didn't realize they were going to be like building. I figured they would outsource it somehow. Like the actual physical building of the uh, like the cases and stuff. But it seems like they're actually going to build an assembly line or something with all the space. So Wow. Yeah. So that's a tweet from Carl Richel, the, the CEO of, of System76. So shout out to them. Uh, that is freaking awesome that they've got that. I don't I don't know if they're like leasing it or whatever, but um but yeah, that that is really cool and I I'm pretty excited about the new System76 stuff. I'm not going to buy a computer from them until they start offering another one from them until they start offering AMD graphics rather than Nvidia. Um but yeah, I am excited to see their new desktop design i got to see the early version of it i'm excited to see what revisions they made and what the final product is going to look like um so yeah that's that's cool good on them and our last thing i just wanted to mention is that in case anyone was not aware yesterday march 16th was richard stallman's birthday he is 65 so happy birthday to rms the uh, founder of the free software movement which obviously is why we're all here now Whew, that was a long show richard yeah <laughs> uh that was a lot so richard thanks for being here to do the show and thanks everyone for showing up to uh to watch and or listen as you can see on the screen right now we're currently talking in the nerd of the street discord server if you want to hop on and talk with us about 
Linux news or just if you have Linux questions, uh, you can go to discord.nots.co. You have to go to that in a web browser and then it will send you to our Discord server and you can talk to us. And we're both hanging out in there on a regular basis. Uh, Richard, if people want to find you throughout the week, where can they go for that? Um, at Glorif22 on Twitter or um, probably minecraftmedia.net or latromedia.com are my two main sites right now. Cool. And you can find me at JacobGKAU on Twitter or, of course, in any of the other videos at nerdonthestreet.com. Uh, that's all we have to talk about this week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you guys next time. Keep using Linux, everybody.